Well, it is always good to be here. It's always good to see you, and it was a joy to be here. I was here on Friday for the Tabor Lectures, and it was wonderful to see uh, the amount of people that were here. Um, it is also welcome to those online. And we are looking this morning at a passage that I think is appropriate as we enter into uh, the Easter season. And I've often, I've heard a pastor one time say that Easter was a lot like the Super Bowl for the church. The only difference is that we already know that Christ is the victorious one and we don't have to rely on the Seahawks to disappoint us once again. But many professing Christians will skip church for the Super Bowl, while many who don't even darken the door of a church will enter it on Easter. And so we do look forward to this time for many reasons, and one of those is the gospel, and that many people might hear the gospel that don't normally get to hear it. But before we get into this this morning, let's ask the Lord to bless our time, and we will go from there. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we give our thanks to you that we have the privilege to come before you in this place this morning to worship you. We pray that our worship would be acceptable to you, and we know that the reason our worship can be acceptable to you is by the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, who, is, who he has called us to himself. I pray that you would keep me from error, that I would decrease and Christ would increase, and we pray this in his name. Amen. If you were to walk into a majority of uh, churches in this day and age, you would see the, the stage and the band would be on the stage and the lights would be low and there would be this, this nice music playing in the background and maybe there would be a pulpit, but usually either a music stand or a, or a lectern or something like that. And you'd come in when the, the, the church service was time to start, the band would come out and they'd start playing and they would say, please stand and worship with us. And maybe after the first song, a pastor would come out and say a prayer or make some announcements or whatever it might be. And then he might say something along the lines of, let us continue in our worship. And so then the band would play another song, everybody would sit down, the pastor would come up and he'd give his message, and he said, now let's worship together, and he would leave and everybody would stand and another song would play. In a lot of churches today, I think the idea of worship is mixed with the music portion. Now, music in church is worship. We are worshiping when we sing. That is one reason why we sing, is because we are offering worship to our Lord. But worship goes beyond just the music. Worship is what we do here on Sunday mornings. When we gather, when we are in fellowship with one another, we are worshiping. When we are singing, we are worshiping. When we are listening and studying the Word of God, we are offering worship to our Lord. So, we are, what I'm, I'm trying to get to right here is to get us into an idea of what is worship? What is the central piece of our worship? And the, the problem that we face in this is many people have different ideas of what worship is and what the central point of our worship is. Many people think that the singing is the central point of our worship, and they'll say things like, sing to the Lord a new song. It's a command. And yes, it is a command, but is that the central point of our worship? Some say the preaching is the central point of our worship. 
And we can make arguments based off of that. But if our worship is not directed towards God, it is directed towards someone or something else. We are creatures that were made to worship, and we will always be worshiping. And the question I have for you today is, do we worship God or do we worship something else? John Calvin has famously said that our hearts are idol factories. Our very being desires to worship something. And if I were to ask you today to think about this once again, what is the central concept of worship? What would you say to this? Not the central object of our worship, but the central concept of our worship. And I'm going to try and make the case this morning, in agreement with Dr. Vodibakum, that the central concept of our worship is the concept of sacrifice. And I mean real sacrifice. Many of these churches that you go into, we have a lot of mobile churches nowadays where they would say where, that uh, your spiritual gift is stacking chairs. And they would say that because nobody wants to stack chairs. And so they're saying, well, you can sacrifice your strength to stack some chairs. And usually if you were a young high school guy, that was, a, that was a pretty good deal because then you could show the girl that you liked that you could carry four chairs at a time as you pack them up to show just how manly you were. But we're not talking about the sacrifice of time and money, but we're talking about true, on an altar, death and bloodshed sacrifice. Because there is something in all of us that says we can't do everything on our own. That in order to be blessed, in order to please God or whatever God many people worship, something must be offered in order to get the blessing. Every major religion has roots in sacrifice in order to please their god or gods. While many no longer do this, the roots in history are there. There are sects of Hinduism that still practice animal sacrifice. Ancient Chinese emperors the, the worship of emperors, once the emperor would die, many of those who, would ser- who had served with him in life felt that they should serve him also in death and would offer themselves as sacrifices in order to join their leader in the afterlife. So we have human sacrifice as well, not just animal sacrifice. And one of the most well-preserved mummies that we have found in archaeology is a 13-year-old girl who was to be used in a sacrifice to the, uh, their gods, her tribe's gods, uh, in the Incan Empire. Uh, Roman Catholics continue to practice the sacrament of sacrifice upon their altar when they partake of the Eucharist. The priest calls down Jesus from heaven and represents him upon the altar of sacrifice again and again and again. Sacrifice is still looked at today. And then in the modern day, we have the sacrifice that appeases the religion of self, where sacrifices are made for careers, education, reputation, and pleasure, that if a child were to come into the picture, it would throw off their plan of life, and so they offer up the baby on the altar of self-fulfillment and convenience. Sacrifice is central to all worship. It was central in the Old Testament. It is central to us today with explanation. 
So if you have your Bibles, let us look once again at this passage of Genesis, and we'll start with verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now let's stop there for just a moment. A few things to consider in verse 1. We have this phrase, after these things. Now, what things are we talking about here? Well, if we're going to look at the direct context, we would look at chapter 21, and this has three main sections to it. First is the birth of Isaac in verses 1 through 7. Then we have Abraham casting out Hagar and Ishmael and God's protection of them in verses 8 through 21. And then we finish off the chapter with the treaty between Abraham and Abimelech. There is nothing in the text that prepares us for what is to come next. It's almost matter-of-factly stated, after these things, the next event in Abraham's life. Now, God tested Abraham is the second thing we're going to look at in this first verse. We are given a bit of insight that Abraham did not have. We are told from the beginning of the passage God's true intentions. This was a test. This may lead... This leaves the reader with no doubt that Isaac was going to walk away from this perfectly fine. But when we consider that this was not made clear to Abraham right away, we can read that the only thoughts that can be entertained here was true sacrifice. And we will expand on that more in just a moment. But just from this first verse, this is where we land there. The third thing to consider from this verse is the response to the Lord. Here I am, Abraham says. This lends itself to the idea that Abraham had no idea what to expect from God, but even after God tells him what he is asking him to do, there is an obvious willing obedience to carry out the task. Now, we will explore Abraham a bit more in the next few weeks as we go through these heroes of the faith. We're kind of going off, uh, off track here a little bit for this, but... Abraham does not have the greatest track record in the world. So pastor preached on the initial call of Abraham, and we have a very similar kind of obedience going on there. God sent him out to the place that he would show him, and Abraham went with his family and just went. But then we have these other stories of Abraham that the Bible reveals to us, that after God shows Abraham the land of Canaan, the the land he says to your offspring, I will give this land, Abraham goes hundreds of miles from this land to Egypt because of a famine. And there in Egypt, Abraham tells his wife, hey, let everybody know you're my sister because you're a good-looking lady, and they're going to kill me and take you for themselves. And so Abraham tells this lie, and his, sis, and, and his wife goes on with the lie, to the point that he essentially allows Pharaoh to take his wife before God intervenes. Later, when God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads with God. God, what if there are 50 people? What if there are 45 people? 30? 20? What if there's only 10 people in the city? Would you destroy the whole city for the sake of 10 people? And then what about Ishmael? Taking things into his own hands when it comes down to the promise that God has given him for a son. But me and my wife, he says, in his mind how I picture it, we're both old. And let's do it ourselves with Hagar. Let's get a son from her. 
And Abraham seems to try a way around these declarations and these commands of God and these promises of God. And then we get to this passage, which is arguably one of the strongest tests we see of faith. Continue reading verses 2 and through 4. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now we get a bit more insight into what Abraham was thinking in all of this. Abraham rose and prepared. There was no argument. There was no pleading. There was no making an excuse. There was no trying to get around it. He rose and he went. And one thing I want to point out here is God is very clear in his instructions. And I think God is very clear in in a lot of his instructions. But here he seems very particular when it comes to his instructions. And I think this is here for a reason. He gave no room for Abraham to get around this. Think of the first thing God says. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Why do you think God was so specific in this particular command? It's because Abraham had another son. Abraham had Ishmael. He was not the son of promise, but he was still Abraham's son. If God just said, take your son and go to the place I will show you and offer him up on the, uh, on the altar for a sacrifice, Abraham could have, well, he didn't specify which son, so I have Ishmael, and he could have taken him. But God was very clear here in his instruction. Your only son, meaning the son of promise, the son that I, God, have given to you, as I promised that I would do, take that son, the one whom you love. We're then taken out of the big picture for a moment and given some details that also tell us a bit about what Abraham was thinking and feeling. Abraham took his donkey, his two men, his son, and the wood. He was preparing for a real sacrifice. And the sacrifice was not foreign to Abraham. Abraham was not the first one to offer sacrifice. This was not a strange request for God to make of Abraham to ask for a sacrifice. When the law had not yet been formally given at this point, there was the expectation of sacrifice to God. A few weeks ago, pastor preached on Abel and how Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. So even from the earliest of mankind, we see a sacrifice being made to the Lord. After the flood, Noah built an altar and took some of every clean animal and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. Job made sacrifices on behalf of his children. So sacrifice was not a foreign concept to Abraham. Even human sacrifice was not altogether a foreign concept to Abraham. The pagan god Moloch often required child sacrifice for his worship, an act that is an abomination to the Lord, according to Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 12.31. While I believe this was probably known to Abraham, 
through, though the law had not been given yet, many people criticize this passage and say that God was asking Abraham to break the law and to sin. Two things to consider when we hear that. The first is while we're not told how old Isaac is at this point, I would make the argument that I don't believe he was a small child. Here's why. One commentator writes this. One clue is Genesis 22:7, where Isaac notices wood and fire, but seeing no animal, asks Abraham about it. Well, this implies that Isaac is at least old enough to know what the proper sacrificial practices is and, percep- and is perceptive enough to ask his father about it. Along with this, we have the talk of ages. Sarah is 90 years old when she has Isaac, according to Genesis 17.17. Sarah sent Ishmael away before the events here and after Isaac is weaned, which generally took place between the ages of 2 and 5. Sarah died at the age of 127, which means that Isaac was older than 4 or 5 years old, but younger than about 36 or 37. A pretty big gap to consider. But continuing on, the time it would take to get to Moriah from where Abraham is here in this passage is about a three, four-day journey, implying that Isaac is not only old enough to make the journey himself and care for himself, but to help care for his hundred-plus-year-old father along with the other two men. The Hebrew word used here that is translated to lad or young man is to refer to Isaac can be translated from a baby to a young man. The same word is used to describe Joseph when he is 17 years old. But the most giving clue, in my very humble opinion, is that the two men are eventually left behind. Abraham and Isaac climb the mountain themselves, and Isaac carries the wood on his back. The evidence, I believe, lends itself that Isaac was at least a teenager capable of doing these tasks. So I think it's a stretch to call this child sacrifice when we think of what is the abomination considered in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The second thing to consider as we read this in light of the critics is that God does as he pleases. The command to sacrifice Isaac was a specific command for a specific purpose. If we hold to the doctrine of cessationism, which I believe is a very important doctrine, which includes the belief that God doesn't speak outside of his word today in in dreams and in visions, because that can lead to a lot of dangerous stuff, and it has led to a lot of dangerous stuff when we consider people who still believe God is speaking to them in dreams and visions. Um, Thankfully, none of them have tried to offer their children up as a sacrifice to the Lord. But we know from the text, as we have already established, we know this is just a test of Abraham's faithfulness. We also know that God is perfectly good and perfectly just, and God acts in accordance with his perfect nature, his perfect goodness, and his perfect justice. God also has ultimate authority, and God can, for his own purposes of goodness and justice, command something that is what we might call the exception to the rule. Dr. R.C. Sproul gives the illustration of a red traffic light. If you're driving and you come up to a red traffic light in your car, what do you do? What does the law require you to do? You stop. What if you're driving and you come up to a red traffic light and there's a police officer there and he blows his whistle and he motions you on through? Do you obey the law or do you obey the one who has the authority to, for a specific purpose, wave you through? You believe the police officer. 
the law as it is written, or the one who has authority to override the law for a specific purpose is what we consider. And we're going to obey the police officer because we know he has the authority to, in a sense, override the law. Now, if there's just some random guy in a party city police hat and plastic handcuffs and he motions you through, well, he does not have the authority to motion you through, and we are going to obey the law rather than man. But Abraham knew God. They had a close relationship, as we see in all the, all the, from Genesis chapter 12 on. He knows God, and Abraham was going to obey God. But we're going to see that this was not just blind obedience. This was faithful obedience. Remember, we are going through the list of the Hebrews chapter 11 saints, the faith chapter, and I promise we will get there in a moment. But Abraham obeyed because of his faith. We continue reading verses 5 through 8. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand and the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Here's where we really see the thoughts of Abraham come through. First, what he says to his young men is a huge clue to what Abraham was thinking. Stay back. We're going to go up and, what did he say? We're going to worship. Abraham still had that sacrifice as the central focus for his worship to God. But then he says this, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham knew that God called him to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham also knew that Isaac was going to come back with him. Two people were going up the mountain. Two people were coming back. We know this as well because we have Isaac breaking this kind of awkward silence by pointing out the wood and the fire. But where was the lamb? And what did Abraham say when Isaac asked of the lamb? He says, God will provide the lamb, my son. The trust in God is shown here. And the, the most in this statement, I believe. Isaac was the promised son through which all the nations on the, on the earth would be blessed. There could be no dependence, there could be no nation blessing of God if there was no promised son. God had to do something. God had to act. And now the climax of the story, verses 9 and 10, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid his son on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Stop there. Abraham bound Isaac. A number of years ago, there was a show on TV called The Bible. I don't recommend it. But the, <laughs> I watched it so you don't have to. Uh, in the scene where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham first looks like he's about in his 40s. Okay? He's forcing Isaac on the altar and tying him up. And Isaac is scared. 
when you see the boy acting, and the boy probably looks like he's about 10 years old in the, in the, in the show. He's struggling. He's kind of asking, why, or what are you doing, Father? What are you doing? And while Abraham's tying him up, he says, God will provide my son. God will provide. And the, you see the conflict going on between them. But I would argue that's not really the picture that we get here, especially if we consider the evidence of Isaac, Isaac's age compared to Abraham's age. Abraham is over 100 years old. I'm pretty sure if Isaac really wanted to, he could take out his dad. But no, Isaac submitted to his father. Isaac knew what was going to happen. Isaac, I think, was a pretty smart guy, and he put two and two together. There's no lamb. Father has the wood. Father has the knife. And now I'm getting tied up. There was basic math back then, too. Right as Abraham was going to perform the act, God stops him. Verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. There were really two options that Abraham considered here that could happen. And really, both options were entertained. What actually happened, which was God stopping Abraham from going through with it, thus Abraham passing the test that God had put in front of him. And the second is what Abraham had faith in God to do, and that was to raise the dead. Now we can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham considered that God could and would do something that only God could do. And that was raise him from the dead. And this is the thing we must consider when we consider sacrifice to even be the central point of our Christian worship today. We must consider, along with it, resurrection. The book of Hebrews fills us in on this subject. It has a lot to say on the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, how sacrifice was necessary and required according to the law, but the sacrifices needed to be offered again and again and again, year after year. One of the arguments that the book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple, which took place in AD 70, is that the author is communicating to the converted Jews that the sacrifices are no longer needed. These converted Jews were tempted to go back to their old ways. And how could they go back to the old ways if the sacrificial system was stopped because the temple was destroyed? But there was another sacrifice to be offered that some people did not see and that what we must focus on today, it's a better sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice of the only Son who was offered up by the Father, who the Father did not withhold who had the wood laid on his back as he made his way up the mountain where the Lord had provided. And in perfect submission, he was bound and he was killed. 
Isaac was a picture of the greater and better sacrifice that was to come. And with the story of Abraham and Isaac, there's a beautiful picture of, picture of the gospel. There's the picture and expectation of resurrection along with sacrifice. There is the substitution as well. Verse 13 of Genesis chapter 22 says this. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went, went back and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, many commentators believe that the ram was there from the beginning, from when they walked up. Some believe it was a miraculous thing, but some believe that it was there from the beginning. But when you think you're going to have to sacrifice your son in just a few moments, there can often be something we miss out on that we're not paying attention to. But what went on around them was God provided the sacrifice. There was a substitutional sacrifice. For us, sacrifice is still the central point of our worship. The same type that was demonstrated here, a substitutionary sacrifice. And our sacrifice doesn't need to be offered over and over again because it was a once-for-all sacrifice. It was the perfect sacrifice. The author of Hebrews makes this clear in in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may, be, may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from a transgression committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy place year after year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. 
It can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered year every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So while sacrifice is no more, it still remains central to our worship. But along with it, we know that with this one-time sacrifice of sin, we see that there is also the promise and hope of resurrection. For if Christ was not resurrected, our faith is in vain. We would be without hope. And if we are in Christ, we, we are eagerly awaiting for this return. If we are in Christ, God has provided a sacrifice. If we are in Christ, there is forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life with our God as, we, as well as the future resurrection of the dead in our glorious bodies. The Easter season is not about colored eggs or a bunny or candy or horrible edible grass. The Easter season is shifting our attention and our direction of to the cross and the empty tomb, to recognize the great price that was paid on our behalf, the celebration of victory. Death could not hold him. Death does not have the final word. Death is not the final place for the Christian. We look to life, life with our Savior, life in the presence of our Lord. And if we share in this glorious truth, we may say also, No guilt in life, no fear in death, for this is the power of Christ in me. And can we say this this morning, church? If we are in Christ this morning, we can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a magnificent truth that you have given us, what a magnificent picture that you have shown us from the beginning of your word to the end, that you have made a way for people that death never had the final word, that you have made sacrifices and that you have made way for your people through your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we call upon today. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this season that we can focus in on this truth, that we can hope and celebrate the joys of eternal life with you. Father, would you be with us today as we continue in our worship We have just worshipped you through the reading and listening of the word. Now let us worship you again through song. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.